This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good morning, Equalizer Extra subscribers. It's time for another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Welcome to episode 43 of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Chelsea Bush. With me this week, as always, is Claire Watkins. And today we are very delighted to have our, our man on the ground, our European correspondent, Kieran Tavum, who was there in France to see everything that happened on, on Saturday. And then there was quite a lot. So, Kieran, since you were there, why don't you kick us off? What are, you, what are your immediate thoughts about the game? Yeah, thanks, Chelsea, and bonjour, mes amis. Uh, still in France at the moment, waiting uh, a few hours before I depart for Alicante for the US's second game in Spain on Tuesday, Tuesday night local time, but obviously it'll be Tuesday afternoon for you guys. Uh, I mean, look, yesterday's game, or yesterday as, as it is the day we're recording, was uh, you could see from the two teams where they are in in terms of the start of the year the french team the vast majority of those players are currently in season with their respective clubs and the the us have a group of individuals who haven't pulled on a pair of cleats since they played against scotland and you could see that almost from the kickoff the french were much sharper they were much quicker they really did kind of overrun the United States, both down the flanks and through the middle of the park. I think we saw some really high-profile players who had really good 2018s, the likes of Alex Morgan and Lindsay Horan, completely stifled. And, and I don't think I've seen Lindsay as ineffective as that in, in a very long time. And, and Alex just didn't get any service. And, and that was largely down to the way that the French played. They, they utilised the wide areas, as I said, I thought, Delphine Cascarino, Amel Majri, Eugenie Le Sommer, certainly in the first 45 minutes, really gave the US some problems. And then I thought second half, they didn't necessarily need to be as good as they were in the first, but still utilise those areas while still being able to really nullify the threat of the US midfielder for Amandine Henri, who will be familiar to a lot of listeners from her time at the Portland Thorns. I think she, I wouldn't say she bossed the midfield because I don't think she had to, but I think she controlled it. I think she really did prevent that midfield three of Crystal Dunn, Lindsay Horan and Morgan Bryan from really being able to to find that killer pass that could maybe unleash one of the front three. And, you know, the result says it all. The French were much better and, and the US will, will be licking their wounds, but we're hoping, hoping that they can regroup and get a result in Spain on Tuesday. Yeah, I, I admit that there were kind of, for me, flashbacks to the opening match of 2015 because it's like they identified a weak area on the flank. Then it was Lori Kolepny, this time it was Emily Fox, and just hammered it, and, and it paid off. 
Um, so, you know, Emily Falk, I'm not trying to judge her too harshly. She's got, I think, what, like three caps with the U.S. I think maybe all three have been in games in Europe, so which is a little bit unusual. I could be off on that. Um, no, but, you know, three caps. She, that was her is third. That right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, she, she's young. I, I think she has good potential. She's not going to be a starter at the World Cup, but I like this idea that we're looking at people for the next cycle because I feel like the U.S. doesn't quite do that often enough. You know, we always tend to have an older team um, when it's worked out. But I, I do think that it's, it's a good thing to bring along a few people that probably really aren't ready for this World Cup. But you've got a 23-person roster. So I'm not going to harp on her her too much. Um, I, I actually, you know, you mentioned Henri kind of not even having to boss the midfield because she was controlling it. And I, I wrote about the midfield in a piece yesterday for the Equalizer. If anyone hasn't read it, please get yourself an extra subscription and sign up. Mm-hmm. And read it and tell me all your thoughts, whether right or wrong. Um, but I just felt like our midfield was completely ineffective. They they weren't creating anything. They weren't, you know, relieving pressure on the defense. They weren't providing service to the forwards. Like, how are you going to judge what the forwards are doing if they can't get the ball? I mean, Kristen Press was probably the best U.S. player. That's because she would drop back to get the ball and then try to make something happen herself. And that's great for her, but she shouldn't have to be doing that. Well, there so. were there's a little bit of that too. I think um, I think the best you know the best chances we saw from the U.S. at least in the first half was when France was really pushing on that on their right side on on the U.S.'s left side, and then that left them a little bit vulnerable for press to get in behind them for counters, which ultimately never came to much. But it was at least you know a plan. Um, but the only issue was that with that was it, it seemed like Fox was kind of hung out to dry a little bit, um, by, by the midfield, by, you know, it, it's not press's job to come back and help her defend. But if you have a player who's just getting annihilated like that, um, you need to drop back a little bit more. And so I think you even saw, I think Fox got 10 minutes in the second half and you could see basically that Haran at that point was given the task of backing her up. Um, to make sure that she had a little bit more support from the midfield. Uh, I thought, I mean, the biggest thing that stuck out to me was just, I thought that um, the United States ball control was awful. Um, just oh yeah, each individual terrible. player, terrible, terrible ball control. Um, even the, the third goal, which, you know, that was a bit of a howler from Nair, but the giveaway at the, you know, in the attacking third, I, I can't tell, it was, it was hard to tell if it was Dunn or Pugh who gave that away, but it was just a terrifying first touch that might as well have just been the pass of the French defense. And then uh, that sprung that counter that got France the third goal. So um, that to me is, but that's also difficult for me to judge because it just looked like these players are out of form. They need to get back in their club situations and they need to, you know, get more consistent practice and playing time. Yeah, Uh, let's, um, sorry, go ahead, Kieran. Oh, I'd agree with that. I think I'm not looking to make excuses for the US. It was bitterly cold as well. And mm. and I think, you know, they've just done warm weather training in Portugal. And I wonder how well that prepares you for an environment like they were in in France. And I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that the cold played a part in the performance. But as I said, they were they were sluggish. They were slower to the to the ball than the French. And as you rightfully just said there, they they need time on the field getting sharper getting used to each other again and and the reality is is that Jill Ellis is still tinkering with with the with the first 11 you know players are still being moved around we saw Crystal Dunn 
played in central midfield again like she was against Scotland when for the majority of last year we saw her play outside back. So players are still having to adjust to their new positions and system as well. I was surprised how uh, how uncomfortable Dunn looked in the midfield, considering you know what she does for the courage. Yeah, yeah I don't but you think have to against Scotland either. Mm. I, I don't think she played very well against Scotland in that position either. So, you know, I was at that game up in uh, in Paisley, just outside Glasgow, and and I prefer Crystal either as an outside back or as as one of that front three because mm. you really utilize her her strengths, which is really getting forward, really getting at defenders. Whereas I almost feel like she's in, she's caught between a rock and a hard place in midfield. She doesn't know whether to go or whether to stay and support the back four because more often than not, yesterday she had to support the back four because they were being so overrun. And that's probably not her strength. Her strength is getting forward, using those wide areas. And in that midfield position, she doesn't get to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, we talk about her with North Carolina. I think we also have to point out that North Carolina, they're playing like like a box midfield. And this is a, a four three three, and I think your responsibilities are much different. That's true. In that, and like you point out, she doesn't have to really drop back and help help defend in a box midfield. She's got McCall Zerboni and Sam Lewis behind her. You know, she gets forward. She's got freedom to roam because she she knows she has that backup. She doesn't have that in a three person midfield, and she's not a central midfielder. And I think you're you're shoe her shoehorning her into something uh, that she's not. But I want to go back to something you said, Karen, because I actually kind of disagree. I think Ellis, in, in a world where everybody is healthy and fit, absolutely has her, her starting 11 worked out. World Cup final, everyone's healthy. I, I would put money on the fact that she's got her starting 11, and I'm pretty sure I could take a good whack at it. I think the thing here is that nobody's, not everyone's healthy. We haven't had everyone healthy in, God, two years. I don't know, something like that. No, that's fair. That is fair. I, I think I could probably take a stab as well. And I imagine that the majority of the players that you and I selected would probably match up. And, and you're right, there were a few players who were unavailable. Obviously, the US soccer Twitter account made it known that players like Julia, Megan Rapino, a few others as well, were nursing minor injuries and, and didn't want to be risked. I think we may see one or two of those in contention for the Spain game. Um, so it may well be that we see a few changes. In fact, I would almost guarantee that we see changes for the Spain match. Uh, but it, it, you're right. I mean, I guess at the moment, Jill needs to to tinker with the with the eleven and, and try out some other players just in case some of those players aren't available at the World Cup in in June for whatever reason that might be. So, do you guys yeah. think that uh, that Tierna Davidson is the fourth option for outside back now? <laughs> I mean, it's like Casey Short can't even get a break. I don't know. She <laughs> she should absolutely be more in the mix than she is. And I've gone on about that before. But I don't – I mean, you know, we all know Jill likes to have those sort of in an emergency kind of things, mm-hmm. you know, be it Tobin Heath at right back or, you know, something like this. So I don't know if that was a – maybe, you know, and in a worst-case scenario, let's see what she can do out here or – what I thought Davidson um, did okay I think it was the whole thing was a scramble but I thought that yeah. she was a step up from Fox at that point which I was thought was pretty impressive yeah. um before we close um, I want to ask I want to ask Kieran uh what was the atmosphere like because on the stream it seemed very loud especially once uh especially once France went up to nothing it seemed like everything kind of exploded yeah, I would say that it was it was decent. I mean, there was a there was a few roars of Allez le Bleu, and and they definitely got behind the team. And uh, there was uh, some fans in in one of the corners behind the goal that had a megaphone and was really kind of geeing up the supporters around them. So look, it was it was a set. It was 
promoted and, and publicized as a sellout, I definitely saw empty seats. My understanding is that some tickets were issued to local schools and for an 8.45 kickoff on a Saturday night, you are going to get families who kind of think, well, actually, no, I don't want to take my child to a to a football match that late. I mean, the, the kickoffs are so late in Europe on occasion. It didn't finish till, you know, half past 10 or whatever time it was. And there were empty seats around, but take nothing away from the French crowd. They were up for it and they had every reason to be. You guys saw it on the stream. I saw it in person. The French were very, very good. Played some really exciting football. You know, we can talk about some of the shortcomings of the US and, and I guess that's what we're here to do being a, a US-based media outlet but let's take nothing away from France they were superb at times they played some scintillating football but as we know and as we've seen a lot of people tweet out after the result last night we have seen this all before with France we've seen them play some of the best football that you will see from any team in the world leading up to a tournament and when they get into that tournament environment it all kind of goes to pot so I will reserve judgment on how well I think France will do in this World Cup, but the fans were definitely up for it, and they had a lot to be encouraged about. Well, you just uh, kind of answered a question I had, which was what you, you thought France could repeat this in, uh, in they June can. July. They've got the players. I mean, you look at, they have really nice balance. They have some really exciting players. I mean, when you're able to bring on a player like Marie-Antoinette Cototo, who I've seen quite a lot of at Paris Saint-Germain, She's really, really exciting, and she's not a guaranteed starter for France. I think ability-wise, she can be as good as anyone in Europe. I really think that highly of her, but she's one of those that, that kind of needs to to maybe think a little bit more about the mental side of the game. But when you've got players like Diani and Lissomere and Tine, who are experienced individuals, they've got the pieces there. Amandine Henri in midfield, the back four, when you've got someone like Wendy Renard, who just dominates whoever she comes up against because of her height and her strength. They except for Crystal Dunn. Except for Crystal Dunn. <laughs> yeah, I did I did have a little chuckle to myself when Crystal absolutely burned past mm -hmm. her. But they have the absolutely. And and the US had players missing last night. So did the French. Grier Bock wasn't playing in in defense. They had one or two others that, that weren't available. So, you know, they have all the pieces, but they've had all the pieces in the past. When you look at the likes of the players that have retired in recent years, Camille Avelie, Louise Nessib. You know, they had some wonderful players, Sonia Bonpastor. They haven't been able to get over the line. We've seen them so often. We saw it in 2015 in that 2-0 win in Lorient. They have the players, they have the ability, but it's just getting over that final hurdle that seems to be the problem for them. All right. Well, uh, that probably wraps up the U.S.-French chat. I've probably talked and tweeted that to death. Um, we'll look forward to Spain on, on a Tuesday, I believe it is, and we'll be right back for our second session. Back to episode 43 of the Equalizer podcast. Again, I'm Chelsea. With me are Claire and Kieran. Um, so we've talked about the U.S. and, and France, and we're going to go to a completely different subject that, at least for me, came out of left field. I, I did not see it coming, and that was the dismissal of Australia's uh, head coach five months before the World Cup uh, due to what I, appears to be an anonymous, some anonymous surveys the, describing the, the, the culture amongst the group was not very conducive to, to good mental health. 
uh, allegations of maybe some some thoughtless homophobic comments by some of the staff, um, some some being very very hard and, and kind of a bullying atmosphere on younger players in particular. Um, that and and it seems to have taken a lot of the players by surprise. Um, the the majority of the veteran players on the team, um, Sam Kerr, Emily Gelnick, Kai Simon, Elise Kellen Knight, Tamika Butt, Lydia Williams, Chloe Lagarzo, Alana Kennedy, I, I could probably keep going, uh, Lisa Devana have all spoken out um, and seem to support him, seem, seem to think that, that they didn't want him gone. So I guess my question is, who filled out these surveys that, that basically said this is a terrible, terrible environment, please do something about it, and what was on them that was so bad that they made this move five months before World Cup because that is that is huge. That timing is is insane. What do you guys think? It's definitely interesting. I, you're right. I mean, it's yanking him so close to the World Cup is such a drastic move that um, I want. I would be very interested to know what exactly the FA saw in those surveys or what their line of thinking was for that. Um, also, I think, I mean, the, the, the anonymity of it is interesting to me because of how many of these, uh, of the high-profile players are speaking out in support. Um, these are all, you know, players that we know in the States. They've got higher profiles. Sometimes when you have a culture where, um, and again, I don't know anything, but this is just, you know, kind of what it looks like. It's possible that maybe um, in Australia, the top players were treated well and some of the bubble players were treated poorly. And um, maybe maybe because of that culture, maybe of, of silence and not feeling like you can speak up, it took something like an anonymous survey uh, to kind of bring some of that stuff to light. But yeah, I have no idea. I don't know what happened. Um, news is trickling out, but it's very interesting to see so many players uh, show their support. Yeah, and, and in so many players showing support, unfortunately what might happen is that it may identify some of those players that, that maybe did speak out in that anonymous survey because if they're not, coming out and saying things and they have no you know they have no um they have no reason to do so and they're, they're under no obligation to do so but if players do stay quiet or silent then obviously all of a sudden it puts them in the spotlight as oh maybe she maybe she had something to say in the anonymous survey i don't think people should look at it like that but with so many players coming out and so many senior players coming out as well i mean we've you know we look at player coaches that have been forced out in the past look at someone like Andreas Heraf the New Zealand coach who recently lost his job that was pretty unanimous as far as we can tell in terms of the players being against his methods being against the way that he coached they're, they're, according to the reports there were you know there was a culture of bullying and uh, intimidation from what we can tell with this one this isn't the case, or certainly not with the senior players. And it's a really interesting one because usually as, as journalists and media, we have an inkling. You know, we had an inkling over, over Haraf because of the reports coming out in New Zealand. We had uh, an inkling over Mark Sampson with, after he lost his job with England because there were a lot of reports and rumours that were flying around before he lost his job. Stadic has come completely out of the blue. No one saw this one coming. And, and it's happened very, very quickly as well. I mean, it was... You know, Football Federation Australia have called a press conference on Friday and Saturday morning he's sacked. So they have acted really quickly. 
and uh, a lot of us don't know what the reasoning is behind it. So what do you guys yeah, think? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that the fact that it happened so quickly and the timing of the World Cup is what makes me think that I think there's a lot more to this than, than the bits and pieces we're hearing. Like, I, I think there's, I'm not saying he's like a terrible person because it, everything I read seemed to emphasize that it was more the entire staff and then the culture. And he just, he's, you know, at the head of it. So he's going to, he's going to take the fall and he kind of has to. Um, but it, it just seems like there, th- there's something deeper here. That That's kind of the sense that I'm getting. Like, this is not just, oh yeah, maybe he's a little bit hard on the, the younger players. Um, I do want to bring up, I don't know if, if you guys remember, but the, the incident last fall with a couple months ago with Mary Fowler, where, um, you know, she's this very bright up and coming young player. And he maybe kind of made what, what some saw as disparaging comments about her family's lifestyle. Her father got upset about it. She, instead of being called up for some friendlies to, to Australia, she chose to go train with Cristiano Ronaldo's uh, sprint coach. Um, and, and she is apparently still eligible to play for Ireland. And so there was concern that, that, that those issues would, um, you know, force her to choose the uh, Ireland over Australia. And there was going to be this big talent loss. And, and it came to mind when all this came up because I'm like, well, that's the only thing I've ever heard of where there was an issue between him and the younger players. And obviously I'm, I'm far from Australia. Um, I'm, I'm not, don't have my head on the ground there, but I feel like if, if that had been an ongoing issue for some time, like surely we would have heard something of it. Right. I also wonder, and, and this is, this is where I, again, I don't, I just, I want to keep reiterating that this is just pure speculation, but um, some things that were mentioned just as possibilities, I think after he was fired was stuff like, how many games top players played last year. You know, you had your top Australian players hitting the 50, 60 game mark. Um, and Australia has been having a really tough time with injuries as well. And I, I wonder maybe if the FA uh, just thinks that for whatever reason, he's not the best coach to take them to the world cup. Maybe it's just kind of an accumulation of a lot of things that they are seeing on the pitch now. And, perhaps part of it also was a competitive decision where they think that a culture change needed to happen if they were going to have a good shot at a, you know, going all the way at the, at the world cup. Yeah. I I mean, I I saw that stat as well. And I've heard about the the numbers of games that the players have played. I think, you know, Alana Kennedy's probably played in a region of 50 to 60 matches because you know, for the Australian players and, and US players as well, we see it so often, don't we? Where they they do a, a season in the NWSL, they they have international fixtures quite often during the course of the year, and then in the winter, when the international fixtures tend to die down a little bit, they go and play in the W League. So they are constantly on the field. That's how it feels, anyway, for for certain players. And maybe they just haven't been managed very well. Maybe there are players who do feel run down and don't feel they're being given the break that they need. But I don't know about you guys. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't feel, certainly from an outsider, it doesn't always feel like Australia plays that many games, certainly at home. I mean, they have the Tournament of Nations. Obviously, they had the Asia Cup last year as part of their qualification for, for the World Cup this year. But there are times where it feels that Australia haven't had a fixture in quite some time. So, they are building up these games. They are probably playing too many matches, but it doesn't, I don't know. It's such a strange one. I just have such little insight into this one. It's really frustrating because usually you have an inkling, but this one just came so out of the blue. Mm-hmm. You're, try, you're trying to find reasons, aren't you? And 
and really we, we're just waiting for that kind of confirmation as to as to what it might be so what do you guys yeah. think so do you think um this significantly alters their chances this summer I would think even I mean obviously a coaching change so soon to the tournament but even the fact that it seems like their locker room is pretty divided right now or would you know seem that way yeah, I, I do think it changes. It just, um, as you said, I, I think, honestly, it's more the locker room to me change, would change. It seems to be there's some division. Uh, their senior players don't seem particularly happy with their federation. Um, and, and I guess maybe it depends on who takes that coaching job. I knew, though, the assistant coach, Gary Van Eggman, is also going to be called in for some questions. So I would say in a normal world, he would be like the leading candidate to take over. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not confident that maybe he's not gonna gonna be dismissed as part of that as well that that brings up some other issues I, I read a, a an article last night from the women's game who's kind of the authority down there in Australia bringing up some candidates every single one it was like well they just don't have the senior international experience so it depends a lot on who they bring in and what kind of coach it was it's almost a shame that Tom Sermani isn't available because I think that in this situation he might be a good one to step in being familiar with the players um, and being a pretty good about kind of building up, but he's been a great grab for New Zealand. So, yeah, but I think the locker room to me it changes their their uh, outlook considerably. Yeah, Gary Van Eggman, good good point, rate bringing him up Chelsea because I think he's Emily's father, isn't he? So yes. that that in itself presents some form of of confrontation or, or potential divide because if he is going to be brought in for questioning and. And if there is deemed to be any kind of problems that he's created, then all of a sudden Emily is the centre of that, isn't she? So yeah, it's a really odd one. And in terms of candidates, you're right. I mean, there's going to be coaches that have done well in the W League. I'm not going to pretend that I know I know more about the players in the W League than I do the coaches. I mean, Heather Garrier, who's, who's obviously coaching in the W League, could potentially be a candidate, obviously an Australian legend. The other name that will, will no doubt pop up, but he's unfortunately for Australia just signed a new contract. Is Joe Montemuro at Arsenal, very, very fought of down in Australia, did a tremendous job with Melbourne City. But Joe seems very certainly having having interacted with Joe in the time that he's been in England and speaking to the players, they they think a lot of him. He's an Arsenal fan as well. But I tell you what, if if Australia are looking to to try and convince someone, Joe Montemuro would be the person that I'd be going for. Yeah, Jess Fishlock seems to think the same way. Um, All right. Well, uh, speaking of Australia, because unfortunately, while we have a speculation at this point, we could probably speculate for hours. But speaking of Australia, let's go in a different direction. Uh, Hayley Mace made her debut for Melbourne City last night and scored, I think it was 12 minutes into her debut to really, really push them into, I think they're even on points with Perth. They are one spot out of the the finals so far, but they're keeping them in the running to sneak in. Um, as, as we all know, she was drafted by Sky Blue and um, has no intention of, of reporting, has made that pretty clear. I don't know where she'll go after Melbourne City, but it does seem like she's kicked off her international career pretty well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, she only gets a couple shots at, at good performances. I don't know how many, uh, how many games City has left, but yeah, it's impressive. It's only a few weeks, isn't it? It's not, there's not a huge amount of the season left, but I mean, what a signing for Melbourne to get towards the back end of their campaign. And yeah, it was 12 minutes, Chelsea. So, you know, it'd be interesting. She's essentially putting herself in the shop window, isn't she? If I was clubs in Europe, I would all be watching as much of Melbourne City over the next few weeks as I could. And I would be uh, contacting her agent to try and be the club that, 
that gets her on board. You guys will have seen a lot more of her than I have, but from what the the brief stints that I've seen in college and brief international appearances that she made at the the start of last year, uh, she will be an asset and a benefit for any team that wants to have her. Yeah, I think it's kind of a, an interesting move by our agents, basically saying, hey, we're not really going to be able to make much of an impact at City, but let's get her on, you know, out in the club atmosphere and prove to people that, hey, she can do it. Um, in other, speaking of, of Sky Blue moves, another segue, uh, John Lipsitz has reported um, that Julia Ashley has, has been rumored to already sign a contract in Sweden and will definitely not report to Sky Blue. She kind of indicated she was, was leaning that way at the draft. Um, according also to John, he says he can confirm that Sky Blue was warned in early December that if they drafted her, she would not report unless changes were made. Uh, as we all know, if Sky Blue has made any changes, they've not decided to make that public information. Um, so, you know, why would Sky Blue draft a player they, they know is not going to show up is my question. Well, that was the pick that they got for Katie Johnson. Like, it's wild to me. They did this deal with Chicago. They get they give up Katie Johnson. Chicago, you know, gets away, you know, like bandits once again. Uh, they pick Julia Ashley knowing full well she's not going to play for them. It's, yeah, it's, um, I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it in, in, in the past as well, haven't we, with Sky Blue? Unfortunately, they don't have great form. We saw it with Casey Murphy last year, didn't we, with drafting her what was it 13th overall knowing that she was pretty much heading to Europe and ended up signing for Montpellier and has, has done really well there uh, I mean adding to the to the tweet that you've you've just read out Chelsea it's not confirmed but my understanding is that Julia is off to Sweden and that she's going to go to Linköping um, so that's not confirmed it's just an understanding that I've got speaking to to various people and sources, but um, yeah, I don't think Julia will be in Sky Blue. I think she will be in Sweden, and, and my understanding is that she's going to Linköping. But you know, it's another blow blow for Sky Blue, isn't it? I, I almost feel like we as media, and I know they feel the way, is that everything that we speak about them seems to be negative. But they need to they need to start throwing some positive stories at us because with Haley Mace already uh, indicating that she's not going to be reporting, and now Julia Ashley looking like she's off to Sweden. Um, I don't know where Sky Blue goes from here because that that is another one, as you've just outlined, Claire, uh, a, a strange one to give up Katie Johnston and, and then draft a player who's who's got no intention of reporting to them. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a mess. You know, Claire and Dan and I uh, talked about Sky Blue and their draft last week and uh, it doesn't seem to be getting any better for them. And that's that's really unfortunate because, you know, there are players who are drafted who are going to show up because that's their shot. And you would just like to see them not not end up the same way as like maybe a Christina Gibbons who just was so highly touted in college and just flamed out um, that in part. Still, that one still grates badly for me, the Christina Gibbons one. I yeah. haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast last week, and I'm sure you guys discussed it. But for such a talented kid at 24 years old, or just having turned 24, drafted in the first round, you know, was on the cusp of the national team squad at the end of 2017 to see her go. I just I just find that really disappointing. And, you know, I won't use the word upsetting, but uh, yeah, actually I would. It's upsetting to see such a talented kid come out of the game so soon after turning professional. Yeah, it is. Um, and on that note, we will we will wrap up this session and, and answer your questions, um, of which there are many, but we'll get to as many as we can next session.
Welcome back to episode 43 of the Equalizer podcast. Chelsea, Claire, and Kieran here, and we are ready to dive into questions. Um, remember, if you have questions for the pod at any point in time, you can use hashtag EQZPod, P-O-D, um, and we will try to get to them. Unfortunately, we, we have quite a lot. I don't think we're going to be able to knock them all out, but let's just kind of, kind of run down. Um, Non-U.S. question, one of the few. Exo Woso says, do Bryce Gurry and Lisa Cole intend to stay involved in WSL? Has anyone asked Washington about their exit? If either were in the pool, how is Burke the only candidate seriously considered? Okay, I, I don't, I can't speak for Bryce Gurry, um, other than to say she's definitely out at Washington. I did speak to Lisa Cole at the draft. Um, she did interview with Washington. She uh, did not interview with those who were making the coaching decisions. So to answer your question about seriously considered, that's, I guess, a matter of opinion. Um, she would like to stay involved with NWSL. It's just a matter of, of finding a place. Um, I, my impression is that no other candidate besides Burke was seriously considered, but I have not spoken to Washington about that. Um, Exowoso again says, few people seem concerned about the age of our forwards ahead of the World Cup. They are spectacular, but five out of six are nearly over 30. If Jill were to add attacking players for the sake of future World Cup experience, who do you think is next in line? Uh, Claire, who do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Um, they... That brings up an interesting point, which is that, you know, uh, Ellis seems to have totally, she's decided that now is not the time to put younger players into the uh, the attacking pool. Um, people, I think, should be getting looks. I mean, I think that this is, you know, she's been, <laughs> she's been in camp, but not as an attacker, but I think Sofia Huerta is someone who should get some time um, in an attacking position. Uh, I think she's someone who could really develop in that area because that's where her strengths are. Um, I th- so I'm going to pick exactly who I was going to go for. Yeah, yeah. I think, she- <laughs> um, I think that uh, Savannah McCaskill is still someone with a lot of potential, but she's in a, her club Her club position right now doesn't, doesn't help her at all um, in her development. Um, I still think that Ashley Hatch has a lot of talent, but it's the same thing. She's just kind of um, been stifled by, you know, the the club situation that she's in. Um, hmm. Shea Grooming. If Shea uh, Groom can yeah. continue to develop under Vlatko, I'd like to see how she does in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yep. So kind of some of the usual suspects. I still think that all of those players are good, but I think that they need to have, uh, they'd need to use this World Cup year to really kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, crystal done their way back into the conversation uh, with uh, so many players gone. Uh, anyone else add, Karen? No, I mean, I, I think, as I said, Shay Groom, I think working under Vlatko, we may be able to see her come back to the to the form that we that we saw maybe a couple of years ago when she was playing for, was it KC she was at before mm-hmm. she went to Sky Blue? Yeah. yeah the form for KC. Um, I mean, we're talking about players that are young, but I still think there are, I mean, I'm 35. I can't believe someone saying that these players are over 30. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, I think there are still players on the cusp that maybe haven't been involved recently. I mean, I, I'm still a massive fan of Amy Rodriguez. I know mm. that she's around that 30 bracket, but I still think she can, she can potentially have, have an influence on this, on this U S team. But I mean, Mal Pugh's 19. You know, Kristen Press is, what, mid to late 20s? There's, there's Alex Morgan. I think she's 30 as well. I think I think the, the question's right. I do believe all those those type five, six that 
he was the only one who who will be under 30 by the time the World Cup runs around. If not under 30, then 29. Yeah, I think the problem is is that a lot of the young players that we've seen come out of college in the last few years have been drafted into teams that haven't been able to to develop them and push them mm-hmm. on. You mentioned Savannah McCaskill, mm-hmm. Ashley Hatch is playing in Washington as well. You know, it's it's difficult for these young kids to go into struggling NWSL sides and really make an impression. They don't all have the the fortunate position of going to a Portland or a North Carolina and and being fed, you know, service, you know, all for not for 90 minutes of a match and being able to score. I guess the other one we haven't mentioned is Lynn Williams. Mm. You know, Lynn Williams has dropped off the radar a little bit. And, you know, she had a good 2018. And Jill Ellis, for some reason, doesn't seem to fancy her. I know that maybe her shot to goal ratio isn't the best in the league. Uh, I haven't got a stat in front of me to back that up. But I still think Lynn has a lot to offer. She does very well for North Carolina, but doesn't seem to, to get the chance with the U.S. Okay, so Connor, um, apologies for mispronounce your last name, Weigert, Weigert uh, asks, what is the missing it factor that Brian, that's Morgan Brian, had in 2015 that she seems to have misplaced and how can she get it back? Now, I wrote extensively about this last night, so I'm going to let uh, Karen, you start out with this and Claire, if you have any thoughts, chime in. Um, yeah, it's difficult with Morgan. I think Game time, possibly, certainly at club level. I think the last couple of years, she's not had the opportunity, I don't think, to progress her game because it's been so stop-start. You know, she had the injury problems in Houston. She then made the the trade to Chicago um, before going to Lyon. Lyon was a, a disaster for her through, you know, few fault of her, faults of her own. It was a case of, you know, the coach not necessarily... Uh, really believing in what, what she could bring to the team and, and barely gave her a kick other than in some games that they, you know, as we've seen with Leon, dominated 9-10-0. Uh, and then going back to Chicago and and being in a team where, um, you know, it's weird, isn't it? She's almost, in my view, competing for her, her spot on the roster alongside her teammate. I think Danielle Colaprico finally being given a chance could if she has a good start to the NWSL season and proves what she can do in, in the national team, could be the player that, that Mo is is competing against for, for a spot. But, uh, you know, I still think I still think Morgan's got a lot to offer, um, but I think game time has been a, a problem for her. And I think the the reality is, is that we've seen other players maybe develop and, and move ahead of her quicker. Um, and I don't know why that is. Uh, 2015, she... She obviously didn't start the tournament, but came in and, and she offered a real kind of additional piece to that team, just sitting in front of that back four and allowing the likes of Lauren Holiday and, and Carly Lloyd to express themselves a little bit more. I, I, I don't know if her role is, is quite the same and maybe that's the problem. It could well be that she's just not adapted to the, to the role that Jill Ellis has given her. I also think, so yeah, I think that Morgan Bryan's an interesting one. I think you're totally right, Kieran. Right now, I think that she and, and Danny are fighting for the same role. I think as of right now, I know Jill, it seems like Jill really still believes in Morgan Bryan, kind of always has. Um, the good news for Morgan Bryan is she's been fit for about six months straight now, which is very good for her. Um, she had a lot of trouble with fitness in Houston. She wasn't getting playing time at Lyon uh, by the second half of the NWSL season. It maybe it you know it took it took a little bit, but by the end there she was playing. She and Danny in the same midfield were playing really really well together. They were kind of swapping um, number six and number eight roles pretty fluidly, and um, I think that that 
midfield connection was a little bit underrated and kind of what strengths Chicago had at the end. Um, And so, but I also think, as we saw yesterday, I don't think she works quite as well necessarily with the type of midfield that um, the U.S. um, is favoring right now. Um, So I don't know. I, I agree. I think she just needs more playing time. I think going through you know, preseason and early NWSL season with Chicago is going to be really good for her, but also it's going to be really good for some of the people who she's competing with for that spot. So yeah, that's an interesting one to watch. I don't think she's, I don't think she's bad. I think that she um, still has a really, really high ceiling. I just think that it's not quite clicking yet. Okay. uh, Two more questions. So we'll get to Valerie Lynn says based on form and assuming all will be healthy, who is your ideal back four for the U.S. Women's National Team this summer? Um, that's a hard question. My ideals or Jill, Jill's ideals are probably two different things. I'm going to actually go with, with Jill. I think and in a world where everyone's healthy, it's going to be Dunn, Sauerbrunn, Davidson, and O'Hare. I think it's the Davidson-Dahlkemper one that we're really going to have to watch. And for me, that depends on what... Davidson does and whatever, however many club games she gets, um, if she can show that sort of week to week consistency, because that is always a huge thing with rookies jumping from the college games. And then she hasn't been forced to do that for the national team yet. Yeah, I um, I also I was going to say I Dahl Kemper was another player. I mean, none of them had great games, but Dahl Kemper had a kind of a rough game yesterday, too. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how as Davidson. gets more fit, you know, she's still coming off injury, uh, to see that kind of competition heat up again. But yeah, I agree. I mostly just, and we talked about this, I, I don't want to steal your, steal what you said, uh, off mic, Chelsea, but, um, if I just think always, if you have one outside back that's pushing more, you need one that's a little bit more defensively minded. So, um, I think Dunn and O'Hara is probably your top talent level, but that's also playing with fire a little bit. Agreed. That's a good point. Kieran, any thoughts? No, nothing to add with you guys. I think Abby and, and Tiana are the two that are fighting for the spot against uh, alongside Becky, aren't they? For me, I, I'd actually disagree with you guys. Just based on 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 her experience, I, I would go with, with Abby Dolkemper. She's played in big games as well. You know, you think about NWSL championship matches, she's got that big game experience that maybe Tiana Davison hasn't but I that does not in any way suggest I do not rate Tiana Davis and I don't think you lose a huge amount if she gets selected above Abby Dahlkemper but the other three I totally agree with you I think they're shoe-ins I think everyone fit you go O'Hara on the right and Dunn on the left but you know if Dunn for, for one reason or another doesn't get selected at left back or is moved into this midfield position that she seems to have had in the last few games I, I think they're lacking that's the one position I think the US have to be a little bit concerned that is left back I think they're a little bit short there. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the answer used to always be, we'll move Kelly O'Hara to left back. Well, then you have a right back problem. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they've got to do some work on their outside backs. Um, last question. Jax wants to know our thoughts on Press's performance. Uh, I've already said I thought she was the U.S. best player last night. Whatever few sparks were were happening in the, in the final third for the U.S., she provided them. And, you know, unfortunately for her, she she was probably the one that did the most work to deserve a goal and it ended up being Mal Pugh not to take away from, from the, the what went into Pugh's goal, which is a nice little sequence from about four players. But I, I thought she was, she was the U S best. I thought she had some really nice 
footwork and, and just couldn't quite get the, the final product or combine with someone to get that final product. Yeah, I thought she was great. I thought there were there were a couple moments that I thought kind of per- perfectly and encapsulated her her game uh, yesterday, which is just she was so good with the ball movement. There was that one time in the first half where she did that. She you know she kind of wound around a couple French defenders and then went end line and and put a put a cross in that essentially just went right to Buadi, but. Um, I I saw that and I thought, wow, if she had had the option to cut centrally, she might have had a much better shot. But obviously her role was to uh, be out wide, which, as we all you know have said one million times, is not necessarily her uh, her forte. But, yeah, I thought she did a great job. Yeah, she did well. I managed to, to speak to her after the game. She spoke to the, the small scattering of U.S. media that were out in France and some French journalists took an interest in what she had to say as well. And. And one thing that Kristen said that, that was quite interesting was that obviously having a young uh, outside back in Emily Fox and then another one in Tiana Davison behind her, it maybe meant that she had a little bit more responsibility defensively, maybe meant that she had to be a little bit more aware of what was behind her and wasn't able to necessarily always focus on what was going on in front of her, which meant, you know, as a senior player, she maybe had a little bit more responsibility than that maybe she'd have had if Crystal Dunn was behind her or Kelly O'Hara was behind her. So with that in mind and the defensive responsibilities, or, or as I say, that having that little bit more awareness of what was behind her, I agree with you guys. I thought she was the, the best player for, for the States from an attacking point of view and across the field. And, and again, we're talking about a player who is more comfortable and is more used to being in a number nine position for her club and, and has been for the vast majority of her career. Couldn't say it better. Uh, all right. That uh, probably wraps up today's episode. Um, apologies if we did not get to your question. Um, we'll try to, you know, we'll get to it next time. You can always, you know, maybe tweet at us. We'll try to get to it during the week. Um, always thank you everyone for listening. This has been Chelsea Bush with Claire Watkins and Karen Tavum all the way from France. Thank you, Karen. Um, and we, we, will, uh, we will all be talking to you at some point in the future. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer Podcast. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Equalizer Soccer. We thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.